But thank you very much, Pastor Mike and the executive and to all the delegates for the opportunity to be amongst you at this time. And my prayer is that God in his wonderful grace will connect our hearts in a special way. And as our brother sang a moment ago, that we will hear his voice as we've never heard it before. God speaks in many different ways. It's essential that we recognize the voice of the Spirit of God. Thank God we still have a God that speaks today. And he's alive. And he's got something to say in the hour in which we live. And I want us to turn to the word, to John chapter 20, a well-known passage. It stands for the reading of God's word. John 20, reading from verse 19. John 20 from verse 19. I'm reading from the same Bible you have in your pews. Then the, the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, uh, Jesus came and stood in, uh, in the midst and said, Fear not. Peace be to you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father hath sent me, I also send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. May God anoint that word. Just a word of prayer. Father, grant that what we're about to receive make us truly thankful. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. We read here these words, the same day at evening, being the first day of the week. I would make bold to say tonight that that day, that first day of the week, was one of the greatest and the most important days in history. It was a day of fulfilled prophecy. There'd been well over 300 prophecies prior to this, and many years actually, centuries prior to this, that predicted this day. And on schedule, that day came. That day, the first day. It was a day of fulfilled prophecy. It was also a day of fulfilled ministry. Jesus had a unique ministry. In fact, everything about the life of Jesus was supernatural. His conception was supernatural. His birth was supernatural. His life, his ministry, his miracles were supernatural. But when he died on the cross, what happened on that first day when he rose from the dead was the culmination 
of an incredible supernatural ministry. We serve a supernatural God. Christianity is a supernatural religion, and it should characterize the lives of every follower of Jesus. It was also a day of faith's distinction. You see, friends, what happened here distinguished the Christian faith from every other religion in the world. There are many religions. Every day there seem to be new ones. I've seen the different religions of the world bowing down to their graven images, longing for an answer, longing to hear their voice. But what happened here distinguished the message of Christ from every other religion in the world because Buddha is dead and still in the grave. Muhammad is dead and still in the grave. But tonight, we worship a Christ that died and rose again that he might be Lord of the living and the dead. We serve a God that's alive. It's a day also of future hope. Paul said, if Christ be not risen from the dead, then is our hope in vain, is our gospel in vain. Everything we hope for in terms of the return of Christ, in terms of eternal life, is based upon the fact that Christ destroyed man's last enemy. And tonight, you can be absolutely sure of the gift of eternal life. You see, this is the bottom line of all religion. The definition of religion is a way of life that leads a man to God. The only trouble is that we can't get to God. So God came to us and gave to us what every religion longs to be able to offer, the assurance of eternal life. What a day. And so if ever there was a day when the disciples should have been out in the marketplace sharing this truth, declaring these facts. It was that day. But where do we find them? The Bible says here that on that day, the first day of the week, at evening, the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. Here they were, men that had walked with Jesus for three years that had observed his ministry, listened to his sermons, understood as they thought his doctrine, observed the miracles. Yet we find them absolutely crippled by fear and locked in an upper room completely out of touch with reality. What a place to find his disciples. Instead of being out there, fear had paralyzed the hearts of these special ones that had been selected from different walks of life. We find that in spite of all that Jesus had invested in them, they're locked in an upper room. What a place to find yourself in an upper room when you should be out in the marketplace. What a place to find ourselves when we should be fruitful and productive and active 
But instead, something has paralyzed and crippled our Christian activity. And they're locked behind closed doors. What a depressive place to find yourself. So I travel around, I find that there are many in an upper room. They've walked with God for years. They bear the name. They have the denominational tag. But there is no effect. There is no impact. There is no contact. And they're locked behind closed doors. A life that is of no use. Deceptive. Dysfunctional. And I can imagine nothing more depressing than to live a Christian life whereby you have a name that you live, but actually you're dead. That's what they were in. That's where they had landed themselves. That was the position they had found themselves retreating into. Some kind of spiritual bomb shelter whereby they could be kept away from the influences and the accusations and the challenges of the world out there. Locked behind closed doors. Instead of being out in the battlegrounds, making an impact. I came across an interesting statement a little while ago. It runs like this, that the church today particularly in the Western world, is one generation away from extinction. I I try to grasp that. The church today, as it is perceived in the Western world, is one generation away from extinction. Now, I do know that Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But notice the words. He said, I'll build my church. It'll be on my terms. It'll be my kind of church. Not that we've tried to manufacture and engineer and structure. My church that will walk with me the same path that I walked and follow me all the way. One generation otherwise. Something has to happen. And I'll tell you what it is. We have to come out of the upper room. We have to come where the people are. We have to walk the path that the master walked. Otherwise, we will be relegated to the last century and declared as totally irrelevant in an hour of scientific advance, in an hour of technological advance, in an hour when we far more educated, the world says, or thinks, The church, friends, was not raised to be locked in an upper room. Jesus did not die on that cross to produce a bunch of cowards. He did not rise from the dead so our Christian lives can be powerless and fruitless. He did not send the Holy Spirit, friends, so that we can just live for ourselves. We are here, by the way, to represent the King of kings and Lord of lords. These are challenging days. Many feel the church is irrelevant. 
I was in the elevator at the hotel we're in. A lady asked me where I'm from, and I got talking. She said, are you from that religious group? <laughs> the world has formed a cruel attitude. In many ways, they have the right to do so. These are challenging days. We have to get out of the upper room. Satan has a way of working with individuals, with believers, with churches, friends, to drive us into that upper room. Anything to make our lives and witness ineffective. Anything. He'll offer you anything you want to keep you from being what Jesus wants us to be. What he sent us to do. By the way, the Great Commission has not been negotiated has not been cancelled. When Jesus said go, tell me, what part of go don't we understand? So Jesus does something interesting here. What does he do with these disciples who were locked in an upper room and they were now ruled and regulated by fear? The Bible says he came to where they were in this depressive state. He could not leave them like this after all. He'd invested so much in them. He'd shed his blood for them. He wants disciples of whom he can be proud and can one day introduce as his brides. He comes where they are, in this depressive attitude, uh, atmosphere. He comes to where they are. He shows them his hand. Those hands were still stained with blood. The nail prints were still there. He showed them his side where he saw the, the, the spear had been plunged into his side. He showed them all. What a demonstration of love. He's trying to say to them, it's on, this is how much I loved you. You see, in our dealings with us, he still loves us in spite of the fact we're locked in an upper room. In spite of our backsliding, in spite of our hypocrisy, in spite of everything, friends, he comes to you and to me. We cannot escape his love. And he comes to where we are, and he says, I want you to know, my dear friend, I still shed my blood for you if you were the only sinner left in the planet Earth. His love is unconditional. There is nothing I can do to make him love me more or love me less. His love. Is absolutely consistent. Then he did something rather special that I want you to note, and I will just touch on them briefly. He gave them five keys to get out of that room. He did not want them to stay there. He had an intention for them. He saw them now. This was going to be his church. These were going to represent him. They can't stay there forever. He gave them five keys to get out. Let's look at those for a moment. I could well be speaking to some believer. Somehow circumstances have driven you into that upper room. Things may have happened. Things may have disillusioned you. 
Things may somehow have robbed you and deprived you of the blessing of God. You watch others being blessed and going on with God, and we go through the performances Sunday by Sunday, but somehow our lives are still paralyzed, and we're locked in that upper room. My friend, take those keys tonight. They're yours. They've been purchased with the blood of Jesus. Key number one, he said, he stood in the midst and offered them his presence. The key of his presence. You see, Jesus had said, I will never leave you, neither forsake you. He said, if you go, then lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Even if we fail a thousand times, he will not forsake us. You see, you've served someone, friends, who has been called the hound of heaven, will track you down because he loved you so much. He said, I offer you my presence. There's something about the presence of God the presence of Jesus that changes things, you know. There's something about his presence that keeps you going on when everything else seems to be falling and failing. My presence. David Livingston, that great missionary to Africa, once stood before a group of students in Scotland. They asked him, what kept you out there in Africa, fighting off savages, going through all kinds of diseases, blow after blow. And he stood before that student body in Scotland and said, it was the assurance that, lo, I'm with you always. My friends, hold on to that. But he wanted to teach them something about his presence. For the last three years, he had been with them physically. And being physically, there are the limitations. But now he wanted them to experience his presence spiritually. He was introducing them to a dimension of the Christian life, friends, by which we call to live. It's by faith. Because our problem is in the Christian life is we are ruled by feelings, emotions. Did you know your your emotions are the shallowest part of your personality? They're like the sea. They ebb and they flow. It just depends how you feel. It depends on your circumstances. And if you feel like praying, you pray. If you don't feel like praying, you won't pray. If you feel like church on Sunday morning, you'll be there, or else you'll find something else to do. And there's lots to do, you see. The Christian life is not lived like that. The Christian life is the just shall live by faith. Faith is there regardless of the circumstances. And his presence is promised to us. We by, I believe by faith he's there. The Bible says, them that come unto God must believe that he is and that he's the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. I know he's there even though sometimes I might be feeling disappointed and depressed. There is the assurance from his word. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by his word. What a key to hold on to. Things go wrong in the church, and you feel you're a miserable failure. People have attacked you, criticized. He said, I'm with you. 
was, by the way, I walked that path as well, to be despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Key number two, twice he says to them, peace I give unto you. He said that twice in this passage. Peace I give unto you. The first is his presence. The second is his peace. I don't know if that's exactly what they wanted. I think they would have preferred Jesus to say to them, listen, you guys, I will sort out those Pharisees and those Romans and change your circumstances for you and you can go free. They would have preferred a change of circumstance. But you see, Jesus wanted to give them a deeper anchor than just a change of circumstance. Very often that's what we want Jesus to do, just sort out my job my family situation, my children, my spouse, and, and my church. But you see, Jesus longs to do an in-depth work whereby the Prince of Peace gives into your heart a peace that passeth all human understanding, regardless of the circumstances. They'd lost their peace. They were miserable. They couldn't even sing anymore. If they did sing, friends, it was just words. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Hold on to that key. It makes all the difference to know that He's with you, yes, but there's a peace that holds you, and the people with whom we work, and the people to whom we minister, will recognize that this man, this woman, has something that's of a supernatural dimension. The key of peace that passeth human understanding. Then in verse 21, he offers now key number three. He says, as the Father sent me, I, even I, also send you. This is the key of purpose. He's saying, listen, you fellows, you're not here just to be sure that you're going to heaven. There's a purpose while you're here. There's a job for you to do. And Jesus said, as the Father sent me, he came on a mission. That mission would cost him everything. That mission was far more than a sightseeing tour of the world, friends. It was to redeem mankind with his own blood. As the Father sent me, so send I you. By the way, that's exactly what he says to all of us tonight. Well, I'm not in India, or I'm not in China, or I'm, not in, I'm not in South America or Africa. No, you're not but you're still a man under a mission. There still is a call upon your life because the Bible says you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. You don't belong to yourself anymore. All you're doing is giving back time and energy that you've taken from God. There's a purpose for your life and sometimes that purpose takes us to the cross. It takes us through the valley. takes us through shattering experiences. To fulfill the purpose for which we were born. Have you discovered that, my friend? Or are we just trying this church and that church and trying this opportunity and that kind of spiritual thrill? Or have we discovered our God-given reason for which we breathe, for which by which we live? Have you begun to see that plan? beginning to unfold within the divine framework of your life. 
as the Father sent me, so send I you. It's that call and commission that holds you. I remember some years ago I was out on the Fiji Islands. We had 18 days of meetings in that beautiful part of the world, many different islands. In fact, the one island was very interesting. You, you came to the dateline of the world. You stood on this side, you're in yesterday. If you stood on this side, you're in tomorrow. Just don't stand in the middle because you don't, won't know where you are. I'll never forget, I had been ministering in one of the top islands and then caught a little plane down to the main island and then had to catch a bus up to the top end of the main island to a little fishing village called Raki Raki or Riki Riki, one of those things. And I traveled the whole day on this bus, finally got there and no one to meet me and uh, had scheduled to start a meeting that night, a five-day campaign. Uh, eventually I got hold of the taxi, a taxi and said, do you know when Pastor so-and-so of the Assembly of God Church is? He said, yes, I know exactly where he lives. I said, would you mind taking me there? Well, when we got there, we arrived outside his house and the wife came running out and she said, are you the preacher from Africa? I said, yes, where's the pastor? Oh, uh, he's gone on a fishing trip. I said, well, I thought we were scheduled to start the meetings tonight. No, we'll start when he gets back. I said, well, when does he get back? She said, well, that depends on the fish. <laughs> well, I knew there was going to be no meeting that night, and I also knew there was going to be no place to stay. So we fished around to get some place. There were no hotels or motels there to go in that little town. So the uh, taxi managed to uh, find a place for me on a little island off from the main island. He put me on the boat with my stuff and sent me out to this island. Arrived there, wondering what on earth am I doing here in this middle of the ocean? and uh, landed in a little grass hut. And the, I went down to the canteen to get some coffee that night and some fish. I met a couple there that were from England, riding bicycles around the world. But how they got to that island by bicycle, I'll never know. <laughs> but there they were. Well, the man said to me, now, where are you from? I said, well, I'm from Africa. Uh, well, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm an evangelist what's that? And uh, I began to tell him. I go around the world telling people about Jesus. He said, well, you need to know I'm an atheist. My wife used to go to some church in England, but uh, there's no time nor place for the things of God in our lives. Well, I went to bed that night. The uh, generator went off and I fell asleep. At six the next morning, I went back to that little canteen to get something to drink, some coffee. And there was this couple from England sitting there. And this man turned to me and he said, excuse me, what makes you leave your family and go out to these uh, parts of the world just to tell people about Jesus? I said, well, thanks for asking. And it gave me the opportunity to share what Jesus means. By 8 o'clock that morning, that man and that woman got on their knees in that little canteen room and surrendered their lives to Jesus. Then I baptized them in the sea. I said, can you baptize us in the sea? I baptized them in the sea. The boat came to collect me, and I went back to the mainland, and we started the meetings. A few months later, that man wrote me a letter from England. He said, I left England riding on a bicycle, not believing there's God anywhere. 
But on the island of Fiji, I met Jesus Christ. And today we are missionaries in Romania. You see, friends, we just have to go. He creates the divine appointments. There will be disappointments. There will be times when you can't understand why God allows certain things to happen. But my friends, he's sovereignly in control. And he has a way through the wilderness. And he's always on schedule. We've got to get out of that room. We'll never see things like that happening otherwise, friends. As long as you sit there speculating about different doctrines and speculating about the wicked world, nothing will happen. Take up the cross and follow him. That's the challenge of the hour, friends. There's got to be an alternative society. And the church is the alternative society. We're not here to play church. We're here on a mission. And God has not canceled his arrangements. He gave him another key. It's the key of pardon. He says these words here. If you forgive, verse 23, the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. All right, once again, I know there's been controversy about all this, about forgiveness for sin. I was down in Brazil just for the last five weeks, actually, and was there when the, the Pope arrived. And he came to visit in Rio. And uh, they're so concerned about the many people from the Roman Catholic churches that are becoming Christians and joining the evangelical churches. So he comes out, but his one concern was that um, people wouldn't come to his meetings. So he made an offer. Now listen to this. That if you come to his rallies, he would have on the Cabana Beach in Rio de Janeiro, he would give you a reduction on purgatory. That's the concept of forgiveness people have. If I do this, he'll do that. My friends, Jesus is speaking about another kind of forgiveness here. It's the forgiveness of the cross. It's the forgiveness that saves to the uttermost. Many of you would have heard the story of the five missionaries that perished in Ecuador in the 1950s. Five missionaries from a great country that went down there to reach an unreached tribe. And in the attempts to do so, they were martyred, brutally butchered. Jamiliot was one of those men. Jim, the wife of Jamiliot went back to that same tribe, and she led the people of that tribe to Christ. In the year 2000 at the Billy Graham Conference in Amsterdam, I met the son of Jamiliot. And on that platform was a man from Ecuador. And he introduced to the crowd and said, this is the man that killed my father. But today he's the pastor of the church. The blood of the martyrs becomes the seed of the church. Right. This is how forgiveness works, friends. That's what it means. Many of us are living with unforgiveness over fights that have taken place in our homes or in our churches, and it is binding us. You can't forgive. A young man came to me after a meeting one night. He said to me, you know, for the last seven years I've never spoken to my daddy 
Something happened in our home seven years ago, and for the last seven years, I've never said one word to him. Oh, we live under the same roof. We eat at the same table. Not one word that we spoke about. But he said, I'm going home tonight to forgive my daddy and to set myself free. Forgiveness. You see, we'll never be able to function if we're not forgiving. It's a key that unlocks that door. Forgive, and the only way we can understand forgiveness is to get back to the cross where Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The wonderful key of of pardon. And then there is the final key that I think covers them all. We looked at the key of his presence, the key of his peace, the key of his purpose, the key of pardon. Then he says these words here in verse 22, receive the Holy Spirit. This, friends, is the key of power. The power of the Holy Spirit. Without me, ye can do nothing. It's the Holy Spirit that makes all these other keys turn. The Holy Spirit enables us to forgive when we've been crushed and crucified. It's the Holy Spirit that begins to unfold divine plans for your life, for the one life we've got. It's the Holy Spirit that gives peace when everything else is falling aside. It's the Holy Spirit that assures you with whispers of assurance, I am with you always. The power of the Holy Spirit. The more I look into the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the less I feel I know about him. We never reach the stage when we master him, but he has to master us and fill us and anoint us, recognizing our deficiencies, our falsities, recognizing our failures. He comes and lays hold of a life, becomes that key that unlocks the door. Thank God those disciples took those keys and out they marched and shook the Roman Empire. Oh, many of them paid it with their blood. Many of them suffered. We are sitting here tonight because they took those keys. We have a generation that will follow if Jesus tarries. I want to ask you tonight, my dear friends, whether you be in the ministry, whether you be serving in the capacity of a leadership in the church, or wherever you are, Don't stay in the upper room. Take those keys. Remember some years ago, I was down in Rio, and we were having meetings, and someone came to me and said, would you mind speaking at the high school downtown Rio? I said, as long as I can have an interpreter with me. They said, of course. And uh, we have to warn you, this school is a very unruly school. Every rebel you can find is there. The kids are wild. I said, well, let's see what happens. Well, I've been using the particular uh, uh, interpreter for meetings during the day, and guess what happens? Uh, he comes to interpret. Now, he was, to say he was useless would be to flatter him. <laughs> he wasn't even useless. Everything was, what do you say? What do you say? <laughs> And he shows up, interprets me at this school of 500 rebels. 
Well, yeah, with the kids, they were in this quadrangle. They were there, forced against their will to surrender their playtime to come and hear me speak. Well, we started. And he starts, he's, what do you say? What do you say? <laughs> I said, brother, you're going to have to listen very carefully. And suddenly, the Spirit of God came upon this interpreter. And he was fluent. A holy hush fell upon that entire group of students. I saw 500 boys and girls give their hearts to Jesus. You can't manufacture that, my friends. Only the Spirit of God. If ever we need the Spirit of God upon us afresh, it's today. We can't do it otherwise. The odds are too great. We might as well close our doors and carry on playing church inside and keep locked in an upper room. When that Spirit comes, he raises up a standard against the forces of darkness. Right. He equips us accordingly. And through Christ, we are more than conquerors. Friends, these are challenging hours. This is an hour for the church like never before. History will tell us it was in the darkest days of the British Isles, at the verge of a revolution, that God found men like John and Charles Wesley and they shook the entire British Isles and stayed off a bloody revolution. Found somebody who had walked out of the other room. I think it was Theodore Roosevelt who loved to go to Africa on safaris. He was traveling back on a ship. He had brought all these trophies, of animals he'd shot and stuffed them, and now was bringing them back. On the same boat were two missionaries who'd worked in the Congo. They were discouraged. They'd, had a, they'd lost their children out there. They'd gone through unbelievable trials, and they were coming back on furlough. When they arrived at New York, there was a vast crowd waiting to welcome the president home. What a reception this camera's flash as he displayed his trophies of stuffed animals. There was no one to welcome the missionaries. They had to get out to the Midwest. They checked in their little motel, waiting to get on a train to go out to the Midwest. And that night, this man was having a struggle. He began to pray and say, God, we gave our whole lives for you. We've suffered so much on the field. We've served you as faithfully as we could. When we got to the docks today, there was no one to welcome us home. When the president came with those dead animals, look at the reception and the welcome home he got. Eventually, God had a chance to reply. He said, my son, you're not home yet. You're not home yet. You see, we're not home yet. We're on the battlefield. We've got a mission that we cannot recant from. I was thrilled to see the missionary exhibition here tonight. Friends, we've got to accelerate that. Right. We've got to change our minds on that, friends. If we don't change gears, we'll never do it. The masses are too great. The forces are tremendous. But I know that God has an elite army of men and women, friends, that he's raising up around the world who are willing to stand for the banner of the cross and preach the gospel and give their lives for what we believe. 
Don't remain locked in an upper room another day longer. Don't miss what God has for you. For I have not seen, nor ear heard, nor entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. I'm going to ask you to bow with me in a word of prayer as we just commit what we've been talking about. Father, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit will drive home the truths of your word, the urgency of your word, the importance of it all. Grant that within the hearts of men and women we'll take those keys and march out never to be the same again under the banner of the cross. Will you take those keys, my friend? Will you receive that key right now that's missing? Open that door. Set yourself free. And allow the Holy Spirit to take hold of you afresh to be what Jesus died on the cross for you to be. Take that key right now. Take that step of faith, unseen to the natural eye, but real to the eye of faith. I receive the keys. Why don't we stand for just a moment with our heads bowed and eyes closed? Isn't this what you need? those keys. He's offering them to you tonight. He shed his blood to make them available. And if the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. But you have to receive those keys. No one can take them for you. Thank God those disciples did. May they be a generation that will say, thank God there were those that stepped out took those keys, made an impact. If that's your desire, may I say to you right now, the altars here are open for you to come and receive those keys to let go of your pride and your fear and say, God, I'm serious. I mean business. I'm taking those keys tonight because I've heard your voice. Will you stand? Step out from where you're standing. Make your way to this altar and say, God, I receive those keys. We'll wait just a moment for you to respond to his word, to seek the Lord and receive these keys.